Please remaining, uh, please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1, verses uh, 5 through 9. Again, God's word from the New Testament, Hebrews 1, 5 through 9. God's word. For which to, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your command companions. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So do you know that your prayer life is radical? That is, when you pray before a meal or at any other time, it is unique, special, and bold. Now, this sounds strange since... We do it all the time, but how is this the case? Well, it is true simply by the fact that we open prayers with our Father who art in heaven and we close in Jesus' name. For compare this with how others pray. First, there's ancient paganism. Among the old polytheism, there were chief gods of the pantheon. Gods like Zeus, El, or Marduk were the top gods, but they were often not exactly prayed to as they were too high and and lofty. They didn't have time for you. Thus, they prayed to lesser deities, spirits, and your dead ancestors. Indeed, ancestor worship focused on getting your prayers answered and learning the will of the gods for your life. And really, this is similar to the way that Even Catholics pray, who don't address the Father so much, or even the Son primarily, for the Father and Son are too transcendent and too stern to pray to directly. Instead, they often pray to angels, saints, and Mother Mary. If Dad is strict, you can always ask Mom. Thus, Catholics pray to glorified saints who supposedly have an inside track with God. But in contrast to this, we skip all other go-betweens and we speak directly to the Father in the Son. This seems bold, even arrogant, from the point of view of others. Thus, why can we pray the way we do? Well, the author of Hebrews lays out the foundation for our prayers, our worship, and our devotion to the Son. So the author of Hebrews opened his letter or sermon with this lovely and profoundly deep ode to the sun. Like diamonds upon a bracelet, he strung one gem of Christ after another. For as he said, the sun is the heir of all, co-creator, the radiance of glory, the imprint of God's essence, the sustainer of the world, the sin purifier, And he sits uh, next to God on high. This is almost love poetry or rousing doxology in one, except that the author communicates it in prose. 
though he does finish this, uh, he finished this opening ode by stating how the Son is greater than angels. Jesus is superior to angels as he inherited a better name than angels. And yet, why make this point? In other parts of the New Testament, Jesus really isn't compared to angels. In fact, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, angels don't get a lot of airtime. Scripture always assumes that angels serve God, and they show up in a few passages as guides for the prophets in their visions. But the Bible gives no extensive information on angels. So why make the point of Jesus being superior to the angels? As a student of the New Testament, this seems rather obvious, even redundant. A good editor would have cut this part out. Well, this seems to be pointed at what the congregation is struggling with. As was mentioned before, the major temptation wooing the church of the book of Hebrews is to go back to Judaism. And within Judaism of the day, during that intertestamental period, the role of angels increased. Yes, the interest and preoccupation with angels significantly multiplied within Judaism compared to the Old Testament. In fact, in the book of Tobit, angels presented the prayers of the saints to God. In First Enoch, angels held a priestly function. And in the Testament of Levi, angels offered propitiatory sacrifices on behalf of the people as well as angels were generally more present and significant in their everyday piety. In this way, Judaism had become more like the polytheism that surrounded it. It gave increasingly more reverence and interest to the divine spirits to help them. Well, the author of Hebrews wants to hold this unhealthy development in check. Of course, the author doesn't denigrate angels, but he does want to put them in their proper place, especially with respect to the Son. Thus now, he moves on to expand and give evidence for the Son being more excellent than the angels. And he does so with this elaborate string of Old Testament quotes, which itself is noteworthy. Remember in the opening verse, the author underlined the betterness of God speaking in the Son over the prophets of the Old Testament. But this superiority doesn't weaken the authority or veracity of the Old Testament. Instead, it's the Old Testament that proclaims with clarity the identity and glory of the Son. And so to magnify the honor and significance of the Son over angels, the author employs the word of God from the Old Testament. And he begins with a pair of quotes. He says, to to which or to whom of the angels did God say such things? And the answer, of course, is to none of them, but he did say this about Jesus. And the author here cites two passages, Psalm 2-7 that we sang and 2 Samuel 7-14 which lands us dead center within the Davidic covenant. In fact, 2 Samuel 7, uh, this verse comes from God's original granting of that covenant to David. As you'll remember, the Lord promised David 
and his son, primarily, the eternal kingdom, a permanent throne, and a never-ending dynasty to rule over God's kingdom on earth. Moreover, the intimacy between God and this kingly son of David would be as close as kin. I will be to him a father, and he my son. Now, this line resembles the adoption formula. That is, this is a legal phraseology of a dad adopting himself a son. Thus, it's covenantal language, so it assumes legality and intimacy. The key point being that this verse focuses not so much on the divine nature of Jesus, but on his office as Messiah. You see, within the Davidic covenant, God's son was a royal title bestowed on each Davidic king upon coronation. And this fits perfectly with the verse from Psalm 2-7 that says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. For this psalm, Psalm 2, is an enthronement psalm. From what we know, it was sung in celebration of a new king in the line of David when he was coronated and he took his seat upon the throne. Thus, this language of begetting isn't referring to the eternal relationship between the father and the son per se. Rather, begetting here means that God crowned him king, laid upon him the title son of God, and ratified the close relationship. Simply put, then, the son is greater than the angels because he fulfilled the Davidic covenant. He was crowned king. He received the title Son of God, and he is bound to the bosom of the Father like a son to his dad. The Son is greater than the angels because he fulfilled the Davidic covenant. No angel could or did ever do this. And the Davidic covenant lies at the heart of our salvation, our life, and our forever is bound up in this covenant. Though it is interesting that amid Israel's neighbors, the language of God's son was also used for kings. And in some places, like in Egypt, the sonship of the king did imply divinity. Now in Israel, the kings were not divine, but they did use the international language of divinity for the Davidic kings, God's son. Well, what was not the case for the Old Testament kings did become a reality in Jesus. For next, the author mentions God bringing the firstborn into the world. Now, the title firstborn is another reference to an Old Testament text, this time Psalm 89. And there, the firstborn is again a royal title. As Psalm 89 says, I will point him, the Davidic king firstborn, and he will be the highest kings of the earth. As a title of supremacy, grandeur, and splendor, Jesus is the firstborn, the highest king of all, the king of kings. Yet the question is, what time is the author thinking of here? When did the firstborn come into the world? Well, our first guess would be the incarnation, the birth of Jesus to Mary. This seems natural. But he, the, <clears throat> the Hebrews author has another time in mind. For he uses this word for world 
to point to the world to come. The undying realm of heaven, the enduring age of the glory, is the world to come. Thus, the moment in view here is actually the resurrection and ascension. When Jesus rode rose victorious over death and flew to the right hand, this was his official enthronement as the Son. In the resurrection, God declared Jesus, you are my Son in power. And in mounting the right-hand throne, the firstborn entered the everlasting age. Hence, at this moment, God called the angels to worship the Son. All the angels bowed the knee to the Son upon his ascension. Now, this line the author pulls about the angels worshiping, the author pulls from two places in the Old Testament. The first one is found in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And here, in context, the angels and the heavens are called to honor and praise the kingship of Yahweh which identifies the kingship with of the Son with that of Yahweh. Yet in the context of Deuteronomy 32, the angels are also called the sons of God. These refer to the non-gods of idols. That is, the idols that Israel fell into worshiping wrongly are exposed in Deuteronomy 32 to be nothing but angels or spirits who themselves worship the Lord. Prostrate angels condemn idolatry. And this is brought out even more in the second place where this verse is found, Psalm 97, verse 7. Now, Psalm 97 represents or presents the coming of Yahweh in the last days as the universal judge. It sings of the ideal and international rule established by the Lord, which is a perfect match for Christ's exaltation at the right hand. Thus, in verse 7 of Psalm 97, all idolaters cast aside their idols in terror and dismay, and all the divine beings bow down to him. Here, angels of God refers to the heavenly spirits that once again lay behind idolatry. They are the nothing gods that are subdued to praise the Lord as an act of self-undivining that then frees the people from slavery to idols and their ability to invoke the name of spirits or angels. Therefore, the worshiping of the Son by the angels explicitly denies them any honor That belongs to God. By citing Psalm 97, the author shows that the angels worship Jesus as the Davidic king, who was the son of God, both in the fulfillment of the covenant and his very divine self, which in turn bars any veneration, prayers, or devotion going to angels. If angels worship the glorified Son, then none of them get our worship or our prayers. Venerating angels is an ingredient in idolatry. Hence, we direct our devotion not to angels, but we do join the angels in worshiping the Son, Jesus Christ. 
And driving this point home about the proper place of angels, Hebrew cites another Old Testament text now, Psalm 104. Now this psalm is a hymn magnifying the Lord as the creator of all. Thus, after praising the Lord for stretching out the heavens and him riding the clouds like a chariot, the psalmist sings of God making his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. Here the angels are equated with wind and fire, which proves several things. One, this expresses that angels are created beings. Angels are not eternal or uncreated, but they too are part of God's handiwork. Next, wind and fire were common forces used by God to accomplish his will, to execute his justice, to destroy his foes. Thus, behind the wind and fire were angels carrying out the command of God. Angels are the Lord's butlers of wind and maids of fire. Finally, though, within the Old Testament world, within the Canaanite setting, flame and fire were two minor pagan deities. This is another polemic against idolatry. Where the nations worshipped gods, they are in reality nothing but spirits heeding the beck and call of our Lord. Once again, then, the author is cutting off any undue interest that the saints might have with angels and venerating them. And to contrast what God said to the angels as his created servants, the author now cites another passage this time from Psalm 45. Now, this psalm is a hymn of royal wedding. It rejoiced in the Lord for the Davidic king upon his wedding day, and it summons the bride to have eyes only for the king. And extolling and in extolling the king, the psalm, is, the psalm here links the monarch to God himself. It speaks of God's address to the king. It says, your throne, O God, is everlasting, but the forever reign is granted to the man sitting on David's seat. Thus the Lord exercises the power of his eternal kingdom by the means of the son's throne. It's the same with the scepter. The scepter of the Lord's authority has been placed in the hand of David's son, and this golden scepter has been forged with uprightness. That is, every aspect of God's reign, all that he does is performed with perfection of holiness, with supreme integrity and blamelessness. Pristine wisdom and justice permeate every last atom of God's scepter. And it's for this reason that the scepter is laid within the palm of the sun. As it says next, you have loved, loved righteousness, which refers to the messianic king. That is the sun lived up to, conformed to, and matched the righteousness of God. Namely, Jesus loved righteousness to fulfill the whole law and to earn for himself the imperishable throne of God. And this was part of the very DNA of the Davidic covenant. 
the Lord promised to David that one of his sons would always rest upon the throne. But only that righteous son would merit the forever kingdom. For Hebrews, to quote this psalm about Christ means that Jesus is the righteous one. He is the one long-awaited for son of David. Of course, paired with loving righteousness is hating wickedness. These two go hand in hand. Thus, this reminds us of, of our disposition towards wickedness. Today, for many good reasons, hatred is taboo and untouchable. And we should love our neighbors. We should not hate. Yet righteousness, attitude towards lawlessness and depraved evil, is one of holy dislike and disgust. As we love our neighbors, as we even love our enemies, and seek to evangelize them, we should not be shy about despising the wickedness of the world. Jesus was a friend to sinners, even as he hated all lawlessness and sin. Yet, for the absolute perfection of the Son's righteousness, what is he given here? As the psalm says, therefore, God has anointed you. The reward for the golden obedience was to be anointed by God as the everlasting king of the heavenly kingdom. Now, the father's anointing the son might make us think of Jesus' baptism or when the woman anointed Jesus for his death. And these do do express his anointment. But the goal and the end of anointment is the elevation of one's legal status. Anointment, excuse me, anointment trans, uh, transforms you from one state to another, from a lower one to a higher. Thus, the visible manifestation of Christ's anointment is once again his resurrection and glorification on high. By loving righteousness, Christ won an anointment as the firstborn of the dead, and as the crown of heaven. Hence, the psalm continues, he was anointed with an oil of gladness above all your companions. The anointing places Jesus above all others. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was made lower than the angels. He was humbled beneath even other humans to be like a slave executed Upon the cross. But in his resurrection, God raised him to the highest place. Jesus ascended all other human beings and beyond all other Davidic kings that went before him, and he ascended even far above every last angel. Moreover, the oil poured on the Son by the Father was the oil of gladness. It belonged to the occasion of rejoicing. Praise and thanksgiving. When happy oil is poured on the true Son and King, then all of God's people are called to worship in gladness. The perfume of such oil summons us all to give the glory to the Son as our Lord and Savior, as our God and King. This oil reminds us then why we have no such... uh, a need, or 
why no such worship or veneration should go towards angels. Why do we not pray to angels? Why are angels denied homage and adoration? Because to do so is an ugly step towards idolatry. Angels are God's creation. They are spiritual servants of God to do his bidding. But they're not gods. They're not divine in any way. Additionally, angels receive not our exaltation because no angel fulfilled the Davidic covenant for us. Instead, only Jesus, being fully God and fully man, loved all righteousness to make the promises of David yes and amen for us. This, then, is the greatest news because our entire salvation is wrapped up in that Davidic covenant. How are you freed from the enemy of death? How are you saved from the slavery to sin? How are you granted an inheritance in heaven? Well, it's all by the active obedience of Christ to conquer all your enemies and to bring you to glory. Yes, being declared openly the Son of God in power in his resurrection, the Son was anointed by God to be your only Savior, your only King, and your sole mediator. This is why our worship is directed at the Son. It is why our prayers are conducted in the name of Jesus and why they're so radically wonderful. Dear saints, you do not need the help of dead ancestors or angels in your prayers. You do not need some spiritual backdoor, some angel to sneak you in to get a meeting with Jesus. No. Instead, because he is the Son, because he's fulfilled all righteousness for your eternal life, you can go directly to the Son And Jesus takes you directly to the Father with boldness, peace, and confidence. Thus, let us not dabble in matters dealing with angels. Sure, there are angels, and they are fellow servants. But all of our attention, devotion, faith, and worship should joyfully rest in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the forever King, and our never-ending Savior. Thus praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. And glory be to the Father for giving us his Son, who was made lower than the angels, but then exalted to the highest place for us and our salvation. Praise the Lord to him then, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.